Kia ora Wellington. You are listening to B-Side Stories on Wellington Access Radio, 106.1 FM. This is Perrine. Today in the studio, we are lucky to have Therese McLeod, someone who has been helping people make links to and enjoy our beautiful natural environment for a long time. And yeah, to, to raise us from Taranaki Whanui, one of the local iwi in Te Whanganui Atara. And quick rundown on some of her many roles, past and present. They include a volunteer on Matthew Soames and then I think moving on to Kaitiaki at Matthew Soames. Um, board member for governance of three islands in Te Whanganui Atara. Duty manager on Kapiti Island <laughs> and lead ranger for bicultural engagement at Zealandia, Timara Atane. I think I'm just scratching the surface there. Um, anyway, welcome to B Side Stories, Therese. Oh, kia ora ihoa, mauri ora ki tātou. I was just thinking uh, how to introduce myself, but that was beautifully done. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I do belong to Taranaki Whanui, so my ancestral mountain's called Taranaki, uh, and he's positioned in the province of Taranaki, so Namotu or New Plymouth is the city of that province. But what happened was my ancestors decided to move down in a series of migrations, and some of them stopped around areas of the Kapiti Coast, um, my family pushed down into Wellington Harbour and around the harbour, and some of our whānau even made it to the top areas of the South Island. So much like my ancestors in the 1830s, I followed suit. <laughs> I'm a devout and dedicated, obsessed Wellingtonian. <laughs> okay, so I have to start with, does your love of and dedication to Wellington extend to the spring in Wellington? Wellington in a southerly, Wellington on a day like today. Absolutely. Um, I find that, that weather, the wind you're referring to and, and all of that sort of thing, energising. It's absolutely energising. All right. It's like the sulphur in Rotorua, eh? Everyone moans about it. But it's actually quite enlivening for some people. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. I think I might be one of those people too, like... And oh. Yeah. <laughs> well, when I drive into the area, I like in Te, te Arua, Rotorua, it's like, oh, I'm in Te Arua, Rotorua. Yeah. I know where I am. Yeah. <laughs> Same with the Wellington wind. Yeah. <laughs> Who would we be without it? <laughs> um, so shall we start maybe with Matthew Soames? Because oh, yes. um, that seems to be in lots of ways kind of the genesis of a lot of the your more recent focus, mm. your connections there. Um, can you tell us about your relationship with the island and kind of how you first got acquainted and how it's developed from there? Yeah, sure. But I have to start back into about 1977 to tell that story when I was seven years old because that's when my uh, love story with nature really began. Um, my father was a policeman. Most of the men in my family ended up being in the police force. And then when Dad left the police force, he went to run boar stalls, boys' homes, kind of that entry-level sort of space um, where young men were starting to get in trouble or didn't have the right whānau support, all those sorts of things. And, you know, it wasn't too big a step. The next step would have been kind of mainstream men's jail. 
Um, so in Dad's work, he used to take, and you could do this back in the 70s, right? He used to take the boys deep bush to offer them some reprieve, some respite, some refreshment, some reflection, some space to recalibrate their personal compasses, right? So tear them, get them away from all the hoha, all the raru raru that they're experiencing at home or in the system and take them into the bush. And what I witnessed is a seven-year-old girl followed me the rest of my life and played out in part on Machu Soames Island and other spaces like that, was witnessing the effect of nature on my brother's lives and the healing properties of being in that, um, that energising environment, but yet subtle and powerful. So that followed me all the way through life and it's played out in various spaces, mm. and Machu Soames Island being one of them. So I rocked up there uh, as a university student, I think. I answered an ad in a community newspaper looking for volunteers to take weeds out. Um, so the particular weed we were focusing on was... Uh, called Cuddle, and so I joined a doc voluntary group, um, and that was my introduction to Machu Soames Island. Then I did pretty much every role in some sort of self-styled apprenticeship that I forced mm -hmm. <laughs> upon the doc staff there and my iwi, and I fell obsessively in love with those three islands because it offered me a way of life that I can't get sometimes that I need. So it's very tribal when you live on those islands. It's very village-like. You have to be very cooperative. You know your neighbours. For your, your success and the success of others, you've got to be very community-hearted in those spaces. So that was the attraction also, working pretty good views back, at well back towards Wellington. <laughs> and I never had to park my car when I wanted to enjoy the fireworks, you know, over the harbour because you get a different view from the middle of Wellington Harbour, right? Yeah. So all of those things and, and much, much more I fell in love with. But I did every role because um, I had to understand how the island works. So it's a really good idea to humble yourself and to get your hands dirty um, as you progress and learn what you need to learn to run a publicly available island. That is, except for Christmas Day, we put the close sign up on the wharf. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's a very unique lifestyle in the middle of the, you know, in the harbour, in the yeah. capital city. Yeah. It's amazing. Shall we, with cuddle, did you say, is the weed? Mm. What's the kind of, what does that weed look like and it's do? Like a, and it's a tree and it's got these sort of bombs, little seed bombs. But they can spread quite wildly and snuff out other vegetational habitat that provides for um, various species that call those space, sanctuary spaces home, right? So they, they take over and dominate other habitats that are more, um, better food, better shelter for different kinds of species. But they've done it pretty, it's still going today. And I, I started at the beginning of that group about 30 years ago, I think, roughly. Um, and it's pretty successful, you know, they... They're just controlling a small amount out there, I understand. But then I went on to other jobs I didn't like so much. Um, I love the public stuff, um, welcoming the public and sharing um, the space with the public. But I eventually got on to the Harbour, Wellington Kaitiaki Harbour Board, and I didn't like that kind of stuff. That's not me. I'm not a natural fit around a board table. Yeah, um, okay. I don't speak in tongues. I'm a pretty plain... <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't have all of that skill set. I'm a pretty plain person. So I found the language, you know, not language that I understand naturally. Yeah. Um. So I found that quite, quite difficult, actually. Yeah. Could you tell us 
What are the three islands we're talking about here? Yeah, the big one, the main one that the public um, are welcome to visit, and there's a public ferry that goes there multiple times a day. It's called Machu Soames Island. And then the middle one, which you'll see sort of towards Eastbourne Way, is called Makaro Ward Island. Uh, public can visit there, but you need to take your own, you know, your own kayak or whatever it is to access that island. It's a very interesting island because it's not what you expect once you land. You know, it's a silvery sanded beach and, and all of that sort of stuff. Huh. And the small, I call the baby islands, called Mokapuna Island, which is just off the main one. And the public can't access that one because it's a reserve and it's got all sorts of scientific experiments going on. But I've been long off the island now for about five years. Yeah. So you were living there? Yeah, on and off, on and off. I was working at Victoria University of Māori Studies, um, Te Kawa a Māori, and so it depends what I was doing in town to make my money, so to make my bread and butter in the city and then go back to the island and volunteer at nights and weekends and when I could take annual leave. There was no money for any job um, for me at that time. And there wasn't really conservation jobs when I went through school. That wasn't a career pathway. Yeah. Then I came across it while a university student and just sort of um, just learned on the job, really, which is, I think, the best way to learn when you're in love with small islands. Yeah. So the um, I'm just wondering about living on the island. Oh, yeah. and, a lot of um, people wonder about that. <laughs> well, kind of historically... It was used as like an outpost by the local iwi? Yeah, because it didn't have a big freshwater supply, right? So um, there's a tiny little tiny little amount of water back in the day, back when my ancestors would have used it in temporary fashion. So uh, at times almost like retreatish. So retreatish That's because... That's a nice word. <laughs> yeah. Well, for some not good reasons, like for protection in case... Uh, enemies were coming down to attack, so we'd retreat off over there, or shorter stays for one reason or another. Right. Yeah, because of that freshwater supply. Oh, okay. So you'd have to take everything over in calabashes, right, that drinking water. Ah, uh, But okay. there was iwi before my iwi went yeah. there, right, you know, from the east coast, Naitara, Nati Ida, they were there well before my people came down and uh, took the ahika over, if you like, looking yeah. after the home fires, keeping the home fires burning. Yeah. But it's lots of complicated se a sequence of historical events, right, of people moving in and out of space and, and all of those things mm. in that period of time. Yeah. But so most people probably would have seen it as a temporarily place, including now, to live. Back in the day. Now um, now my cousin is the Kaitiaki Ranger, yeah. uh, Ranger Gemma, and she lives there permanently. Um, so she's been there five years. So it depends how you look at yeah. temporary. She's got um, typically our dock rangers will be there for a five-year period. Then they move on to other spaces and other islands. But our Gemma, she's so good at her job and so incredible. We wanted to keep her there as long as <laughs> she wants to be there. Yeah. But it is interesting when I was because we've got kind of have you been? I have. So you've seen all the buildings, right? Yeah. So there's sort of buildings and there's sort of five standard bungalow houses which house the MAF quarantine staff back in the day when animals were taken there if they came into New Zealand. Um, so they're sort of, they look like any old other house but people are fascinated when they come to the island and want to actually just see the house. And it's a standard three-bedroom house. Mm -hmm. But they're kind of really taken by the enchantment, if you like, 
yeah. of what that is like to look at that view. That I'm really pleased that no billionaire can buy that view. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> From our five houses, because we have yeah. the most magnificent view of the harbour. Really good, glad that that can't be accessed. Yeah. And the island is now, I don't know if you use the word ownership, but is owned by... Um, Taranaki Whanui? Oh, yeah, so well, so that's the that's the system of law we inherited, right, yeah. with colonisation. So we never saw it in those terms. But if you want to play it out in those terms, yes, in a fee simple, it's called. Yeah. Some legal word. Um, we own it outright. Yeah. Yeah, and we have Doc help us manage it while we build our capacity to eventually, hopefully, one day govern that entirely ourselves. Yeah. That's a long aspiration because I was the only one doing it for such a long period of time, right? Um, but we're, we're working at changing that. Yeah. When you started doing it by yourself, did mm. people kind of think like, you know, was it, were your ideas received um, readily or did you kind of have to like convince people like that more needs to be done thinking about the island and its future? Well, nobody paid me much attention, really, um, <laughs> to tell you the truth. And to tell you the truth, when I rocked up there and did a little bit of dot volunteering and then decided um, that I wanted to pay attention to, like, the house, the Whare Mahana, which is one of the houses set aside for our iwi interests, um, and pay attention to improving the island aesthetically and what we had or didn't have, um, but I didn't have any right kind of rights, really. We weren't, you know, we didn't own the island then as such. Mm. You know, it was pre-settlement. So I was there during pre-settlement, the settlement, and then post-settlement with the government. So it was an interesting time. So I didn't have any authority or any power, really. Mm. So I just spent two years wondering how to attack it because there was no money, there's no rent, there's nothing. And what, what around when was this, sorry? Oh, about 30 years ago. Okay. It's quite so, a lonely island. There weren't a lot of people 90s. going there. Yeah. I would often be the only one there with um, a, a dock ranger, um, an older guy that was there, very nice. But it was just us. It was very lonely mm. and um, kind of sad. And my mother said, "Don't share what you don't share this with everybody because they'll take it over." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I knew, I knew she's sort of half joking, but I knew that it needed energy from lots of people to love it and to care for it. And so I would find ways, and I found ways, after two years of sitting there being totally overwhelmed with having no resources, I just started weeding one day around the infrastructure, the buildings, mm. and just making them attractive and and alivened mm -hmm. rather than kind of 100 generations of moths that died in there. So opening it up refreshing it and giving it love and intention. I'll tell you what, as soon as you break the back on something, people start slowly folding in when they see that progress. Yeah. And so that's how it was done. Yeah. And then we got some new, younger, um, very dedicated female rangers, um, and they changed the game. We changed the game, essentially. Without yes. being whakahihi about it, we yeah. just changed the game. Yeah. And then people want to come when something looks polished and... People take pride in it, right? And people want to get on board that. And so it, it changed from then on. Then people started coming back to the island. That's their home. Yeah. Mm. Amazing thing to experience in, in Wellington. It's just like, you know, 20 minutes away from a latte. 
and then you can be on an island or you go back and forth. So it's amazing. There's not a lot of compromising on that island. You have access to things like we even get pizzas delivered there when we're staying. It's a pretty hard case. What's the delivery fee like on that? <laughs> um, well, the delivery fee's kind because we get it from the pavilion over in Eastbourne. Uh, okay. So they're just across from the wharf, so yeah. they do us little favours. Oh, <laughs> that's nice to hear. <laughs> um, I have to say, as a visitor to the island, I went for the first time in 2007, and then I went, I've been other times in between, but mm-hmm. I went most recently this summer, and I was blown away at how much it's changed in that time in terms mm. of the native vegetation. Mm. Is that, I mean, is that one of the main focuses that you've been working on or is it a bit broader than... Mine's uh, a bit broader, but yeah. we, we had uh, Forest and Bird, Mum and Dad's Army, that would dedicate every Monday to putting a cloak back on that island back in the day and they've just... You know, and they've handed the the reins on to younger generations coming through, pay a lot of attention to what we plant and when we plant it and why we're planting this, why we're taking this plant away. Um, so it provides a really good space and habitat. But mine's been a bit broader about connecting people, not only my people, but other iwi and people from all around the world to the opportunity that the island offers. So I was often doing the public-facing stuff of the island, as well as being the cleaner, as well as being the monitor <laughs> or something. Um, it's amazing um, how many people you take on walks that come for the first time. So educating people about the availability of the island has been kind of more my focus. Yeah. And I read somewhere that you refer you referring it to as Medicine Island. It is, absolutely. Can you Ma- tell us a bit about that? Well, there's nothing too hard, to, hard about it. Um, these nature spaces are medicine. We would call it in Māori rungua. Um, just by the, 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 the energy that plants give you and, and all of that kind of stuff, the wairua of it, um, the spirit of it, if you like, is is amazing medicine. In this day of development and, and inner city living, right, the, you breathe differently in these spaces than you do in nature. I don't see many people coming out of a swim in Tangaroa angry. I, I think it's like when I saw my <laughs> brothers in the deep bush, right, they became refreshed yeah. by their environment. So that's what I mean by the medicine. And you have different conversations with people and you meet different types of people in those kind of spaces, those special spaces. Yeah. I found my younger cousins that came out from Waifatu Marae, um, we started doing um, mauraiko out there, Māori weaponry um, with my family. And I would say usually I'm a little bit of the unfavourite auntie because I'd be on the wharf with the fish bin and put all the gadgets and then you don't get them till you leave. <laughs> <laughs> so about three or four hours of pure hatred would come my way <laughs> until I could show them the cool stuff in nature. Then they're detoxing, right? So they're going through a process of detoxing, suburban, TV, those kind of things. There's nothing wrong with them, but just in balance. But it's sort of out of balance with a lot of my younger cousins, right? Nothing wrong with those tools and technology, but I want them for a moment to focus on nature. And about hour five, they're all over me because auntie knows how to do cool things in nature. And then they would have had a swim and that would have reset them from what they'd come from, right? So I've never seen anyone come out too angry uh, yeah. out of a swim or the bush, right? They're refreshed. You're recovering. Yeah. That's the medicine. Yeah. 
I definitely, the swim, I can relate to that. The swim, sure. you just feel 100%. Yeah. Yeah. Um, You're a midi midi by Tangaroa, that's why. <laughs> <laughs> can I ask about, because the island has a certain feeling, I think. The island has a history, mm. and I remember when I first went there, I felt... I felt the history of the kind of, um, mm. oh, I think the people who were quarantined mm. or prisoners of war there, I don't know, maybe it was the buildings or the way it was, yeah. but it had a kind of um, heaviness to it or something mm. to me. Um, and I'm not sure if that's something that you have kind of experienced or um, kind of worked through as the manafin ahika there. You have to work through a lot of things on an <laughs> island like that, right? So it's around 25 hectares, but it's had layers and layers and layers of different histories from people and animals, right? So at war, you know, we we, we locked people up on the island, if you like. This is um, this is w- pre-European times? With- no, 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 oh, no, very European right, times. Right, the um, World War Two. World War Two, yeah. So we thought that some people might be alien enemy spies. We put people there that were sick coming in from long ship trips, right? Um, and they used to raise the yellow flag, I don't know if you know from history, and then divert any the ship to the island before going to the city and unloading your sick there. Um, A lot of them, children and elderly that got sick on those long ship voyages, right, Um, and died there on the island. They're there, and I'm very conscious of them. In terms of the heaviness, I get what you're saying, because one of those buildings, the Animal Quarantine Station, which we still have standing, is very Stalin-looking, right? It's very <laughs> yeah. Soviet block looking. Yeah. So that can play to people's aesthetics and kind of the the visual vibe they're getting from that island. But it's a it's a very loving. Like I used to be, uh, I I'm spooked easily, but I would stay <laughs> on that island on my own, knowing the various histories and and the young children and sick people that died there over time, and the animals that died there over time. So I haven't been spooked out not once. But that building does sort of like, you know, mm. it's a bit spooky. Yeah. And maybe it, well, it's definitely different for you because you have a role there or you kind of know know your place there maybe in a way that visitors don't so much. Probably. I mean, that's a great love story in my life. So, yeah. you know, uh, there's that. But I hope visitors um, don't feel too spooked out about <laughs> the building. <laughs> There's a lot of love there. There's a lot yeah. of love there, but just those funny things look a bit odd. Yeah. And to clarify, I just with the the change in bush, I also felt the change in atmosphere on the island mm. between my first and most recent visit. Well, that's right. I mean, for Wellingtonians and, and everybody else outside of Wellington, it was a no-go island. So it's quarantine, you can't go there. You can't go there, don't go there. And a lot of people even to this very day say, we didn't know we could come here. So mm. it's changing the psyche. Um, of a very long history where you couldn't access it unless you were considered an enemy alien during war or a sick person or an animal in quarantine or anything like that. Yeah. Mm. And um, shall we maybe move on to the other islands in your life? Because mm. there are a few, both <laughs> in the harbour and beyond, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know if you want to speak more about Mokopuna and 
I've forgotten the name of the other one in the harbour. Makaro. Makaro. Um, that's more or less monitoring kind of little blue penguins or korora. Oh, they've taken the blue out of little blue penguins. Little penguin. And have kororo. they? They have. I can't remember why. <laughs> I always call them little blue penguins. But um, I can speak to the penguins in a minute if you want me to. Um, so that's more monitoring roles on those other two islands. So obviously, you know, we don't live on those islands. We just go and check check them out. Yeah. Yeah, maybe get some kaimoana from around them. And the little, uh, and the korora? Korora, oh my gosh. You know that, that in Wellington Harbour, that's their home, right? In and around Wellington Harbour, that little penguin. Did you know it's the smallest penguin in the world? I may have heard that before. <laughs> it's pretty yeah. cool. It's pretty cool in terms of what that means, you know, in a city that's a city of first, you know, Zealandia, the first fully fenced urban eco-sanctuary in the world. What predator-free Wellington are doing in terms of eradicating pests is the first movement across a city in a world. You know, we've got the smallest penguin in the world. So there's mm. a lot of that kind of thing going on. But the penguins are really struggling. The kōrōra are really struggling. Um, and the development that's happening around the harbour, right, and the displacement that those developments are causing their papakainga or where they live. The Smithsonian did some work on them and they said the kōrōra are phyllobattery. I didn't know what that meant, but it means they have a love of home. So they GPS and lock it in, that home that they've created. So with all of this development, displacement, you get kōrōra disorientation, right? And then there's things like drivers and penguin crossing roads and dogs attacking these little kōrōra, these little penguins. So they're up against it. They're really up against it. And they predate all of us in and around Wellington mm -hmm. Harbour, to be honest. And I'm not saying that, you know, development shouldn't happen. I'm not saying that at all. And you, and you should drive and you can walk your dog. But what we need to do now is raise our community collective consciousness about the species because they're really, really struggling, they need our help. And so that's just about adjusting some human behaviours is always suggesting. So maybe in this area, think about not driving so fast, or maybe when you walk your dog, maybe for this part beyond lead, because we know that they live there. So just some slight adjustments yeah. to pay respect. Everyone's got a right to have a space here. The developer, the driver, the dog, and that kōrōra. Mm. So I'm just suggesting recently um, to the city council that they consider putting that kōrōra into iconic Wellington species status. Mm. We don't have an iconic species in Wellington. So, and what I'm aiming to do with that is really just raise <coughs> our awareness. It's not enough to have a new sign around the road and stuff. You need more. You need that awareness that these species exist and are fighting to exist in their home. Yeah. So I've been on that crusade a little bit lately. Just a new one to add to that. <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's you know, you've got to while you, while you've got a mic and you've got people listening, uh, you fight your corner. Yeah. You, know, you just fight the corner if it needs to be fought. A lot of environmental things are quite overwhelming for myself. And for people in general, oh, don't do this, don't do that, I need to think about this and worry about that, it is very, very overwhelming. But just slight adjustments, mm -hmm. you know, do what you can do. But, but try something even little, makes big changes. Um, Capital court order. 
Yeah. Well, that's the thing. If people can, if people get excited about a thing that feels uniquely theirs, mm. then the relationship can change. It's an incredible species, you know. Um, it's, as I said, the smallest penguin in the world, but it has the heart of a lion. And so we admire all of these qualities that the species demonstrates to us, right? So they're very devoted uh, to family, absolutely devoted and dedicated to their family. They, they're humble. They're a very humble species, you know, but brave and courageous, cute and create, courageous. <laughs> Good tagline. Got to, got to speak out for them when they need it, eh? Yeah. When something needs it, you've got to call it. Yeah. Mm. Um, other islands that um, <laughs> I understand you have connections yep. with, Rekohu and mm. Kawo Island. Yeah, Kawa's a gorgeous island. I don't even work there. Um, I just go and promenade there at the the ten percent of the island that's in government hands. So that's docks manage manages a small part where the late uh, Governor General Sir George Grey lived in Mansion House. So basically, I just take tours of Mansion House. Um, but it was so so easy for me to be on that island. It's beautiful, all sorts of like international. Um, and national kind of interesting people turn up on it on their planes that they can land on the water. Um, so it's just an interesting space because everywhere else I'm the iwi girl. I'm the girl <laughs> that's in the sacrificial marriage between my and my iwi props me up as the bride to marry a government department or something. <laughs> um, so on Kawa Island I don't have to do that. I can just promenade and just play Lady of the Manor, mm-hmm. and it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun taking tours um, around Kawa Island. haven't done that for years. Um, Rea Kohu, which is the Moriori name of the Chatham Islands. The Māori name is Whare Um As the island, I say, is a bucket list place for anyone to go. And uh, so not only are you um, offered a crayfish coma, on arrival or a power coma on arrival. Um, it's just extraordinary way of life that doesn't exist in mainland New Zealand anymore. So you see people operating in ways that I had imagined um, that my great-grandparents would operate, their knowledge of the environment, their knowledge of how to look after themselves. Um, you know, there's, I think, one, one or two shops over there, very expensive to freight anything in. So you know how to you know how to use your land. Therefore, I find that a very attractive way of life, and the skill set that's required to do that is very attractive. But yeah, no, it's a very interesting island for me from an iwi perspective. Um, my mother's family have Papa Maori to that island, um, and no matter which way you slice it, great great grievous harm was done to those Moriori people. Um, as a result of my mother's ancestors going over to that island, we need to we need to acknowledge that, and I don't think we do enough. So yeah, but I went there the first time. My best friend went over on some. Co- I was just you know a tag along, not going for any particular reason. Maybe to promenade. Oh, well, perhaps <laughs> I don't think they'll allow that on Rikuhu <laughs> on Carwell maybe. <laughs> but he took me there, and I didn't know where we were staying, and he was going on some sort of co-pub. I didn't really know, um, and he said, "Oh, we're going to stay at the Moriori um, Kopinga Marae," and I freaked out because I had a, not a sound idea of the history. I knew enough. I knew yeah. enough, so I was quite embarrassed to rock up there and be hosted at that Marae. Was 
shy as nervous as because as soon as you get there you're around the po that has all the moriori ancestral names carved into it and you stand around as a group in this po around this po and you introduce yourself nobody else was from Taranaki at that point and I was I was a bit shy to identify myself knowing the history and looking at those names um and being yeah feeling mummy for those people mm. Mm. and did you feel like you were able to kind of over your stay there did you feel like you were able to kind of come more to terms with the, the history um no because I think I think that we need to really apologize I don't think we've really apologized for the harm we cause those people so I don't think it's settled and it carries through generation to generation I couldn't have been loved more by the way um, I was really nervous um, and I couldn't have been loved and regarded more by the Moriori people there yeah uh, quite astonishing really wow. yeah. yeah so it's a, an amazing place geologically food wise kaimoana wise people wise and I know with the COVID restricting a lot of international travel and stuff, more people have been going over to experience the uniqueness that oh, is yeah? the Chatham Islands. Yeah, it's, it's quite quite remarkable. You'll feel buzzed out. And one of the things I didn't expect, you often get fogged in. So the date you expected, so you stay there about a week because of the flights, um, but often at periods of time during the year you get fogged in so you can stay much longer. And that luckily happened to me, I think, twice. <laughs> But I guess my, my kind of, I don't know what my role is really, it's kind of bridging the gaps and and and, and offering what I can offer from my mother's papa perspective. Yeah, just acknowledging people. That's all people want is to be acknowledged for something, you know. Oh, I caused you a harm, I acknowledge it, I apologise, you know. And people move on from quite simple things like that. Mm. Um, and so we mentioned earlier Kapiti Island as well, where yeah. you spent a bit of time, which is quite, you know, it's, it's on a, the different side of yeah, it's a <laughs> of big land. Than, <laughs> yeah, it's big. It's on the um, sea, wait, Tasman seaside, I guess. Mm. Um, kind of some rocky currents to get there, you know. It often takes, I went there as a, just as a tourism uh, yeah. guest um, for a birthday many years ago. And uh, some, I mean, talk about feels. You get the feels on Kapiti Island in certain places, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. It's vast, and a lot of people know of its history, and that's quite full on. Um, so it's a full on island. I was just there for a season or two, I think, um, doing tour guiding, well, duty managing um, the business end of the island where people come and stay for the night or two. Um, so I was doing a lot of tour guiding, yeah, on that. It's a big island. Yeah, and and I wasn't like we had some whakapapa links to the island through Taranaki marriages, um, with Nati Toa. But yeah, I found that a tough island to be on. Oh yeah, yeah, really tough. Um, for whakapapa reasons, for size reasons of the island, for yeah. the types of clientele you've got to satisfy. Right. That <laughs> yeah. Come on to those <laughs> tours, right? And everybody wants a kiwi to hongi them, pretty much. Yeah. Not everybody, but the majority of people paying a bit of money, and they want that experience. Um, so you've got to manage expectations and realities on the ground. And I would often find that oh, like I'd know some night, I'd almost know for sure that we wouldn't. Um, come across Kiwi and just 
turning people on to other things to appreciate um, and segueing, you know, look at the sky and this is what's happening up there and, you know, diverting attention. But it's a neat gateway for me, I found. I quite enjoyed um, getting people to understand that this isn't on demand in a space where everything's on demand and bloody immediate and we live in the age of information lust. It was neat just to think that you don't control this. Yeah. And it was neat to educate people in that space. Yeah. I was thinking it might be time for a break. Oh, my God. Is this the one where you play um, songs that I've requested? Yep. That's a bucket list <laughs> wish thing that you get to choose what's going to play on the air. That's awesome. What's the first one? Well, I decided to start with Maisie Rika. So you chose Waiti Waita. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Maisie Rika is a goddess. Um, <laughs> and I love, we're so talented in New Zealand music. And Waiti Waita's talking about the the stars in the Matariki whanau that denote freshwater and seawater in particular. And I think we'll probably get on to freshwater in a bit. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, 
Kia ora, Wellington. You are listening to B-Side Stories, Wellington Access Radio, 106.1 FM. This is Perrine, and I'm speaking to Therese McLeod. We just had the lovely, soothing sounds of Maisie Rika. And we're going to come back and talk about the campaign for legal personhood for Kaiwharafara Stream. Mm. So... Can you start by just giving us a little introduction to the stream? Yeah, Kaifara for the stream uh, is a stream, so it's uh, not a river, so it's uh, skinnier and not as deep as a river, so it's a stream or an awa. And it begins its story inside Zealandia to Maratane, and it weaves its way through the sanctuary and then out of the sanctuary, so beyond the fence. So then it starts heading into suburbia and then the industrial zone into the estuary, into the harbour. So once it's out of the fence, then we have a lot of challenges with it. So um, Zealandia, Te Maratane have a project called Kia Mauri Ora Te Kai Farafara, for I said it in Taranaki dialect, Kai Warawara, um, Sanctuary to Sea. So we're looking at cleaning up the corridor um, between Sanctuary and Sea using that awa or that stream. Uh, to do science, it's pretty complicated. Mm. And how did I get this idea of doing kaiwharafara <laughs> legal? How? Uh, well, um, in honesty, during that very first COVID lockdown, you know, the major one, that first, you know, that's when oh, yeah. no cows were on the road. It feels like a million mm-hmm. years ago. Yeah. Eh? And the supermarket was funny and all the rest of it. So I grabbed before that lockdown, because we didn't have a lot of lead-in time to the Prime Minister saying, oh, we're going to lock down now, level whatever it was, um, the maximum level. I went over to the supermarket and just did um, a blind buy and grabbed a whole lot of magazines. And that magazine, North and South, which I've been reading since I was a teenager, was a short article on the Whanganui River becoming a legal person. And I'd always knew about, I'd known about it, but I didn't really fully understand what that meant. And that article was really helpful in explaining um, using uh, law and the legal system to defend its rights. So I thought, oh, well, that's a pretty good idea. And when I rocked up to work after that lockdown uh, freed, I suggested to the project people and, and the team and other stuff, we should make that stream a legal person. I think when a stream has so many challenges as the kaiwharafara, right, once it gets out of that fence, far out, you know, it's up for everything in suburban human behaviours mm-hmm. and then industrial area, area behaviours. So lots of challenges coming into the health of that stream from all sorts of sources. And so I think when you have a long journey and a challenging one, you've got to throw everything you've got in the toolkit to defend it, to protect it. So I suggested that to people. My, an old lecturer, um, law professor I knew at Victoria University, Te Waka, Professor Catherine Irons. I cornered her after she was doing a public engagement at something at the National Library, actually. She didn't even have time for a cup of tea. And I said, do you think this is a good idea? And she agreed. And so she's been helping with her expertise in that area of law, um, figuring out how we achieve that. Mm. So. But thank you to all the mahi, the Wanganui iwi that inspired me. And recently, Taranaki Maunga and the National Park around the Maunga went into that status. I think when things are challenging in particular, you need to use everything you've got to defend it. Yeah. Yeah, that's why. Yeah. 
Um, Sometimes I wish I didn't have these ideas, which tend to be simple <laughs> in my head, until you, you walk them right, you walk them through and you try and make that happen, then it becomes sort of very, very complicated and a lot of conversations to be had and all the rest of it. Yeah. It's worth it. Yeah. And is there a reason that legal personhood appealed to you over other ways of, I don't know, protecting the waters? It seems to be mostly about the water's health. We, you've talked about oh, the it, corridor, the, the whole yeah, corridor. Okay. But the water in particular, because things move in that water, mm-hmm. and it's a habitat for all sorts of freshwater species and stuff. But we're paying attention to the whole corridor, if you like, but the river's the conduit of the legal action because it moves past so many different things. Um, at one end, the floor is different, um, to, and it's all right to other spaces in it, but it's the water that I'm particularly interested in. Um, I, I just think, what was your question again? Um, whether it was kind of the environmental focus for legal personhood or a, whether it's a bit bigger than... Oh, it's bigger than that. And there's lots of cases where they've used the law to protect it. It gets a lot of attention, which gets it into people's consciousness. People talk about it. I threw that idea in when the project was... Any project, long project, has peaks and valleys, Right. Some things it's all on and then it goes quiet and then it's all on. I just felt we were in a quiet space and I thought I'd throw this in to energise the conversation and sensitise people to thinking about the benefits of moving that into a legal person. There's a reason why people do it. Nobody's got any spare time to muck around and waste Mm. time on moving law. I don't know if you're all familiar with the justice system in New Zealand. It's pretty glacially slow. Um, So there are reasons why we want to use the law to protect it. And not only that, to get attention and conversation and all of those things around it and that status and that mana enshrined into law. But Professor Irons, you need to have her on the show. She speaks (laughs) about it much more beautifully and she can tell you how the law works in that space in a way I can't. I just uh, a girl that has an idea and can bring people together to try and make that happen. Important (laughs) stuff. Um, Do you, where are you at in the campaign at the moment for legal Mm. personhood? You're kind of gaining, is it still at the like kind of reaching out and gaining awareness? It's creating kind of conversations around it. So this happened in COVID, right? And we've had a succession of break, uh, COVID, you know, lockdown since that idea. Um, so it's all voluntary, you know, Professor Irons is volunteering in the space. So it's about, we created some, we were on some TV shows, with Moana talking about it, various media things talking about it. So creating that kind of community awareness through those channels has kind of been a focus. And then thinking about, what what we what we're arguing for and the remedy that we want from that argument. So if somebody does this, what is the remedy we're looking for? So all those that's Professor Irons uh, is looking at that, and then hopefully now that my cousins have finished the settlement with the Monga, um, Taranaki <laughs> Monga, they'll give them a little holiday and approach them whether they want to work on this team and moving that forward. It's it's uh, yeah. So it's about taking something to a court and arguing it. But I've got all my, pretty much most of my iwi on side. I mean, I've spoken about it to the iwi. So it's lining up your ducks. Do you think this is the right idea? Shall we progress it? Yeah. And then Catherine, Professor Iron says, do the, the work. Cool. Yeah, and whatever team that we can put around her to progress that. 
But it's early, very early days. Wanganui wasn't an overnight, was it? No. You know, it takes generations, yeah. unfortunately. But I'm hoping that from that learning that costs so many generations that it's maybe going to short our time. Yeah. We'll see. Yeah. Um, and so one of the other kind of big themes that we've looked or that – kind of stand out for me is the way you connect people with the environment. Mm. And so um, unfortunately we won't have time to hear more about the blind tours at Zealandia today or the Korowai at Porirua. Oh, Um, yeah, that's cool. (laughs) And um, But the plastic-free Utapa. So that's something, so that's um, Orpo Utapa, is it, out in Makara? Yeah, that's plastic-free. So that belongs to Taranaki Whanui. That's a Urupa space because other Urupa around uh, are filling up. But it came out of the Sanctuary to Sea project when we were rubbish auditing in the Kaiwharafara stream. Uh, me and Dr Amanda Valois, a plastic scientist with Niwa at the time, were taking out uh, rubbish and we analyse it. Every single thing is analysed. And one day we were noticing lots of plastic flowers and I just asked a simple, where are these coming from? They have been blowing in from Karori Cemetery, the second biggest cemetery in New Zealand, right? And so I said, well, shouldn't we just do something about this. Um, But I thought before I marched up to Karori Cemetery and I have a wonderful relationship um, with them, I thought I'd better clean up my own cemetery first. So Māori have their own urupa or cemetery. Um, And I tried to to do that and I was not met uh, warmly with the suggestion (sighs) that we become plastic-free urupa. It's such a sensitive um, subject and it's actually been quite a hurtful one for me to experience the backlash and the aggression from members of my Fanu, hapu and iwi uh, this was not a traditional Māori practice, putting the $2 shop uh, and plastic flowers on our ancestral graves we didn't used to do that um, but me suggesting uh, removing plastics uh, at Makara Urupa was met favourably. That's a new Urupa, so I can begin the behaviour from right. the start. So that's easier. Yeah. But the established one's way harder. I didn't realise what it would cost um, to suggest something that seems so simple in my mind. It's not the first time anybody's tried to reduce or remove plastics from cemeteries. It's usually the legs run out of the race when people get upset around it um, and you find that people abandon that um the effort to try and reduce plastic in that space. The reason being, cemeteries in Urupa tend to be on the outskirts of a town close to waterways. That program was brought to you by Wellington Access Radio. Get your voice heard. Thanks New Zealand On Air for funding accessmedia.nz.